Welcome to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I speak with photographer Jonathan Saunders. He has worked with clients such as Time Magazine, Forbes, People Magazine, and Fortune, to name a few. In this interview, I speak to Jonathan about how he got into photography, one of his early assignments photographing legendary uh, movie director Francis Ford Coppola, and much, much more. Uh, Jonathan is just a really passionate photographer. Uh, for years, he's been uh, running this site, blog, um, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's called I Like to Tell Stories.com. Uh, the guy is just always shooting. Uh, his output is just like in, truly incredible. The guy is just a photographic machine, always is shooting really cool stuff. Definitely go check out that. I like to tell stories.com. Um, yeah, been, been a big fan of his work for years, so I was excited to get a chance to speak with him. Um, so I hope you enjoy it, and thanks so much for listening. All right, well, Jonathan Saunders, uh, welcome to the podcast, man. Um, how you doing today, dude? Uh, it's a good day. Yeah, you were shooting yesterday when we set this up. How did it go, man? What were you shooting yesterday? Uh out a, a buddy shooting uh shooting a portrait oh nice man how did it go so, yeah i'm it went well i'm all over the map like if friends call and want help shooting uh shooting a duck i'm like down to go help you do a portrait of a duck if you want to you got a job i'll help you or loan you gear to shoot a shot nice man are you where are you based so, at these days these days i'm in Asheville, China. i've been here i think today makes 60 days oh I damn i've been here damn so it's like pretty new for you yeah super new like i'm still kind of getting settled and trying to stop spinning wheels and settle in and get to work that's cool man it's got to be exciting getting into like a new location is it kind of like kind of spark your interest kind of photography wise to kind of go somewhere new pretty much um yeah i mean part of my whole thing is i just want to make things so if i can be in a spot that's it's an easier life. Like I'm going to go there so I can concentrate on making things. And I have a, an old friend from New York who invited me to have a show here. And when we started talking about it, everything kind of came together. And I was like, well, this is not worth me moving over to Asheville, even if just for a year to work and build this show. Oh, wow. So, so, so you're still, you're still like, you're in the process of creating the work that will be in this show. Um, well, this show is, uh, it's going to be, both is the is the easiest answer, but I do a a book or project of photography all day long every July 11th. So okay. I've been doing it for about 13 years now, and this show is um is going to be year number 10, like the 10 year anniversary of doing this project. So all the images from that are being organized, and we're getting ready to start doing the test printing, and I'm laying out the the space in the room now. Mm. is that the thing that's on your website it's uh julius is that the project you do every- yeah all right cool um yeah well, how did that kind of how did you kind of start working on that what kind of prompted you to make in each year on july 11th um well the easy way to explain it is uh so about 14 years ago uh, a girlfriend and i accidentally got pregnant and we chose to not go through with it mm. and so later that night I was just kind of sitting there taking care of her and she fell asleep. And I was like, you know what, on this day next year, I'm going to make the most beautiful thing that I can. Mm. And so when that year came around, I I walked to where we, we went 
through what we chose to do and then walk home. And the photographs I made were, I collected and kind of put away in a little special place and didn't worry about. And then the next year rolled around and I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do that again. And so now every, every July 11th, I do something at what I call the limits of my ability, like use a new technique I've never used before, use new gear I've never done before, plan something out really big or just let the day unfold. But no matter what, like make something. That's interesting. And is it like, is it something you look forward to every July now? Is some years more of a challenge than others? Or how is it now that you've been doing it for all these years? Um, I would say both. Like some years, it's nothing but anxiety and pressure. And I'll freak out. I'll come up with big ideas and then abandon them all and just go for walks and make things. And other years, I come up with big, elaborate plans. Mm. No, so it would depend on the year. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, no, it's interesting, man. The thing, like I said, when I was setting this up, like I've been following your work for years. I went to RIT, which I believe you went to RIT, if, I, if I'm correct. Um, yeah, I did. All right. Um, looking at your work and following like the, the site you have, I like to tell stories for years. It just seems like the impression I get is you're, you're just like constantly shooting, constantly working on all these different little projects. Uh, are you always just shooting or do you have times where you're not shooting and you kind of uh, go through lulls or is it just a constant thing for you pretty much with photography and creating artwork, I guess? Um, it's both. For the most part, I mean, it's what I like to do the most. So, I mean, one of the things I probably say too often is I wish the world would leave me alone and just let me go make things. <laughs> but, you know, you got to do those. You got to go like earn your your rent and buy food and those things get really annoying because I'd, I'd rather be out making something. No, I feel you, man. Uh, (laughs) So there's days, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that sometimes carries his camera everywhere he goes, but it doesn't mean I'm using it. It like, it becomes like a Linus blanket. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like just because I have it doesn't mean I'm going to use it. And then there's other times where I've forgotten it and everything you see is beautiful. And you're like, Oh, damn. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's all over the map. And like, like you said, like every year you kind of like basically made this, I would, I guess you wouldn't call it an assignment, but it's like every year you, you challenge yourself to make a, a, like a new work, new project on July 11th. And even with like your, your site, I like to tell stories. Is it almost like you kind of like putting that pressure on yourself to like give yourself a challenge to keep making work? It kind of gives you a reason to do stuff kind of. Um, yeah, I never really thought of it that way, but that's an interesting way to put it. Like, for the 11th, it definitely becomes pressure and I get riddled with anxiety months ahead of time, all for one day. Mm. And other times it's, it's not stressful at all because as long as I do it, I can't fail. Mm. You know what I mean? Like by the nature of being yourself and just actually making something like I, I think it's going to work out. Mm. And so some of my favorite projects are, are ones where I didn't plan it. And then I'll I'll put the work away for a while and and come back to it and I'm like oh wow this is that's a really amazing day mm. and so I think as long as you commit to to holding that promise to myself I don't see that it can necessarily fail I don't define success by any other things other than did I try mm. so yeah it's gonna it's gonna be all right as long as I do it yeah. Yeah, I've always kind of respected people that like are, are always just kind of shooting and kind of just throwing stuff out there. Um, like, 
you've been doing this for a long time, and the thing I'm always curious with people is like every time you go out for a shoot, you're creating something. Are, do you always leave satisfied on like every shoot, or are there times where you kind of doubt yourself and what you created? Like obviously you have like an idea in mind of what you want to do going into stuff, some stuff probably sometimes, but at this point in your career, do you always leave satisfied or are you still kind of like hungry to keep pushing yourself? I don't know that I could even tell you what satisfied means to me, but <laughs> I, I would say it depends on the context, right? Like if it's an assignment I've done for in a magazine or a client or something, like if they seem happy when I leave and I can't think of anything that I could have done better, yeah. Like I'll, I'll use the word content. Like, I don't know about satisfied, but it's like, all right, you know what? Like I did my best, but most of the time there's always something where it's like, why didn't I try this light? Or why didn't I see this? Mm. You know, like I'm always kind of backseat driving myself after a shoot, like some friends call it, like the post shoot depression, right? You're always like, ah, yeah. it's a big buildup and there's all this energy and all this anxiety and you want to make something really awesome. And then, you can't always see it right when it's over. You can only see the things you wish you did better mm. or that you forgot mm. or things like that. But if I can't think of anything that I wish I'd tried or something else, like yeah. then I'm, I'll go with the word more content. than <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I'm always just kind of curious because I know myself, I'm always this like, I always have this sense of feeling like, you know, maybe I could have pushed it farther. Maybe I should have took this picture. Um, but it's kind of good to hear people are all kind of similar, I guess, feelings or something, you know? Yeah. I mean, the funny thing with me thinking about this question is that I did so many shoots where I wasn't given much time that it was, it would be really funny to me if all of a sudden, like I would, you know, I get my hour to set up yeah. and my five minutes with whoever, and then it's over. And occasionally I would end up with more time yep. and I would all of a sudden like be like, all right, you know, I'd shoot a handful of frames, whether it was, you know, a roll with the half of ladder with digital where I feel like I've, I've kind of exhausted this scene and I'm so used to the shoot being over or them being pulled out or walking off. And it's just like, all right, cool. Like I did my best, you know, there's going to be something cool in there. And then when they don't leave and I all of a sudden have time, I'm like, <laughs> what do I do? Oh, wow. Like, I yeah, what do I do? <laughs> like I'm, <laughs> I'm all thrown off. I'm not used to having time. Like I got a lot of jobs because I would literally get a call. I got a call once from another. It was like, look, it's a really ugly place. You have no time. The guy's ugly and he's kind of an asshole. So we thought like we should call you to have you shoot him. <laughs> and I was like, um, uh, thank you. Was that, it was that, is that the editor's way of trying to say that you're an asshole too? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's a really good question. I never thought about it that way. I always thought I was just good with these kind of people. Like yeah. I could get something, Yeah, you know? So I remember when I first left New York, I think I had done almost 450 like beige men in beige suits and beige windowless conference rooms in five minutes. Yeah. And it's like, all right, like uh, this is, uh, maybe if I move, I'll start getting different kinds of jobs. Yeah. Like maybe someone will let me photograph a pretty person in a pretty place who's nice. Yeah. Do you, do you feel, because I actually have like a certain amount of respect because like, uh, shooting those like office portraits or whatever it is, boring stuff. Like, like I have a friend, Tony Long. He's a great photographer in the Boston area, and he, I've always admired the way he can like go into like these corporate offices, and he still makes like kind of like a fine art portrait. Do you feel like doing those hundreds of shoots? Like looking back on it now, obviously you'd love a better location, but was it kind of like good training to like have this challenge to like make something interesting in these like somewhat boring environments, kind of? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the the perfect crucible, right? Like, okay, you have 
not a lot of time and you have a little bit of gear and you have to make something cool now. So I saw it as my job that I have to make something or a portrait that's really cool when someone's flipping through a magazine or flipping through whatever digital media that like they're going to see my picture and that's going to stop and make them read the article. Mm-hmm. So I kind of thought I was like, all right, you know, like what's the challenge today and like try not to repeat yourself and what kind of cool thing can you come up with? And I mean, for the most part, I like that task. Now I'd be drenched in sweat and nervous and anxious, yep. but I, I liked the challenge. I mean, that's kind of what photography is in a big way, like really boiled down to something small. Like here's your chance. And it's all on you to just make something beautiful mm. in this situation that isn't. And mm. so to me, that was a, a fascinating way to do it. And I liked a lot of those kind of business people that I would photograph, you know, like I don't understand a lot of it, but in their field, if I'm there, usually for the kind of clients I was shooting for, this person's good at what they do. Like they've accomplished something that's made me yeah. get to take their picture. So even if I can't relate, like they might be, an equivalent amazing musician. It just happens to be business. Yeah, and I'm sure I would imagine like, you know, people like have their perceptions of what these business people are like, but I would imagine maybe not. I don't know. You probably end up having some interesting conversations with these business guys sometimes. You might go and think of one thing, but is it sometimes you leave with a different perspective after like working with these type of people? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them, I mean, it was always different, but it would be really cool when they did kind of, defy your expectations or you just start chatting and i mean they're they're people too so if you can find a common ground to talk about something Mm. you know you're kind of off to the races a little bit if you can make them feel comfortable you even have the time Mm. you know lots of times people walk in and they're like oh who's this what's this today like all right Mm. and so i don't always engage them on that level if they don't have the time or interest it's more just like all right like i need you to stand here and look this way look left look right okay cool you look great thank you (laughs) yeah yeah thanks for your time and they're like all right and that was that yeah for sure yeah Um, but i've also had people that were super super cool mm -hmm. like i worked for a a magazine called cfo or like you know chief financial officer magazine sometimes and i loved those shoots because for whatever reason all the people i photographed were super, super fun. I don't know if they're just not used to the attention, so this is their moment, but I photographed a guy at Alcoa, and we ended up spending like a half an hour after the shoot, like watching the World Cup he had on in, on his television in his office. Yeah, It was the CFO of like ABC Television who has like his own floor in some big high-rise in Manhattan. Damn. And the room was like full of food. Damn. And I was like, yeah, I can't believe you filled the, the room with food and we're just here to do a shoot and he's like well no i ordered you guys lunch and i was like oh this is for us like oh my god <laughs> yeah man so well, why don't we do this portrait we'll eat and then if you got some time like i'll set up a second portrait while you're eating and then we'll be ready to shoot again and i ended up with a couple portraits of them that i think for what for what it was were really beautiful damn that's that's awesome man um i guess to go back like like where do you grow up and like how do you kind of get into ph- photography initially uh, let's see, I try and tell without boring everyone to death, but I was born on a, on a air force base outside Salt Lake city, which I jokingly call a spy plane base, but I was only there a couple months. My dad got transferred to the Pentagon in DC. Wow. And then he, then he went into the private sector and like did a bunch of different business moves. So I moved every three years growing up. So I was in Utah, Virginia, New Jersey, Texas, and Pennsylvania is then where I finished high school. Yeah. And 
And during all that time, I wanted to be in the military and was like super gung ho and had the jarhead haircut. And in Texas, I was in the ROTC and wanted to fly jets. Wow. And then when, yeah, I was just as passionate, I guess, about photography, but it was misdirected into a lot of military things. Mm. So I was dying to be a pilot. So my freshman year of high school, I was riding away to senators to try and get an appointment to West Point or Annapolis. And then we moved to Pennsylvania. And during a trip back to Texas, I blew out my knee really bad and like with a pickup football game. Fuck. And then a couple months later, I was doing some pull-ups trying to be like Mr. Tough Guy with my jarhead haircut outside <laughs> Philadelphia. And I let go of a pull-up bar. Like I flipped my legs up over my head to like dismount the pull-up bar. And when I hit the ground, I blew my knee out again. So like the, the kneecap was in the wrong place. Like Jesus. I dislocated the bottom half of my leg backwards. Yeah. So I spent, I had a, I had my knee reconstructed and then spent eight months on crutches. Jesus. So during that time, my dad used to keep his film like point and shoot in the pantry. So I would hobble around the house and when no one was looking, I'd grab his point and shoot and take like a really stupid picture of my face mm. and put the camera back. <laughs> and so six months later, my dad gets the role of film developed and I'm lying there with my leg up on pillows or whatever, watching TV. My dad throws you know, the four by six envelope full of film and negatives across the room at me. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I think these are yours. And like, he threw it at me like he was mad. Oh, really? And it hit the ground. And when it hit the ground, like all the prints like spilled out on the ground. Yes. It was like one family portrait of Christmas, like 22 pictures of my face. <laughs> and like the group picture of us at like Easter or whatever. And I just burst out laughing. I was like, oh my God, these are so great. <laughs> Damn. And my my dad had a pretty good photography background too in the air force and some other things. So when I turned 16, like a month later, the joke, he kind of got me my own little SLR mm. and the birthday card literally said like, now you can take all the damn pictures of yourself you want. <laughs> and I kind of went crazy because I was, I could no longer join the military because of my knee. I was living in a new town or I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any friends. Yeah. So I would sit there at night and just, play with my camera and my mom was getting her MFA in art history at the time. So she would bring me books back from like her MoMA trips and stuff that were like the more joy of photography. Mm. And like, she gave me a Maplethorpe book and all this stuff when I was like 16. Damn. So I was like, Oh my God. So I started just reading about photography and I couldn't do much in high school. I couldn't go to gym. So they'd send me to the library mm. and my library had all the old American photography magazines going back to 76. Damn. or something like that. So what I would do is I just went back to the very first issue and read them all Damn. and then started figuring out how to work my camera. I found some local photographers in Westchester, Pennsylvania that I started interning with through a program at my high school. So instead of having to go to high school, I could go to their studios. Damn. And so while I was, yeah, I was a senior in high school and I was loading four by five film and working a, a Jobo processor and we, I was helping assist on shoots for like sprint. Oh, that's cool. That's yeah, a, it was really cool. That's awesome, man. Are you like, are you like the type of person like if you get into something, do you get like pretty obsessive about it? Uh, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember watching you when I was in college. I think you were just getting into shooting clays. Um, I don't know if you. Oh God. <laughs> I don't know. If, are you? Do you still shoot clays at all? Um, I don't like, I, I went down the rabbit hole with it pretty good for five years. Like I was living <laughs> just outside of times square and I found an Olympic level coach down in Delaware. <laughs> so I would rent, I would rent a car at Hertz, load up my gear, drive to the Southern tip of Delaware, take a two hour private clay shooting lesson yeah. and then drive back to Manhattan. Yeah. And so it was really fun for five years, but 
because I'm a big, goofy, awkward white guy at like a gun event, people would come up to me and just start talking. Yeah. And I really got a, a fill of gun culture really, really quickly, even though this is, a, it was an Olympic style sport, you know, like I liked the act of the, the shooting. I, I wasn't into the gun culture. It's one of the reasons I kind of really got out of it, but I did go down the rabbit hole with it. I shot at nationals for five years in a row. I shot at the world level once. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, and I just thought it was really funny. Like I was winning trophies and medals, like shooting frisbees out of the air. Like I thought it was, yeah, it was good. It, it was a great distraction as well. It was, a, it kind of coincided with a lot of my clients mm-hmm. starting to vanish and have financial troubles yep. and hire less. Mm-hmm. So to me, it was like a distracting therapy. And I liked having a mentor and a coach was yeah. really exciting. So it ended up being more like life lessons. Yeah. Like the actual shooting, like you could do and figure out, but it was more like, how do you calm your, your brain before an event? Like, how do you manage the stress and the pressure of these big competitions? So like looking back on it now, I think that's what I was really enjoying about it was that and the travel, because you go to these places out in the middle of nowhere and it, it, it sparked, it kept my brain alive in a way that it, wasn't really working in New York city anymore. So all those things combined, we're kind of into it, but it's definitely embarrassing thinking now like, Oh wow. You remember me as that guy that shot Clay. No, it wasn't just that. I just, <laughs> I just, cause this is, I got an RIT like 11 years ago. And I think when I was, this is probably like, I don't know, it must've been, you were doing it yet yeah, 10 plus years ago. And yeah, I just remember the excitement you had for it. Cause you could tell you'd post on your little blog there, like new stuff you were doing. I could tell you <laughs> it was like a new obsession, but yeah, it's kind of, uh, I mean, it's just cool. It's like, did, there's so much stuff out there in the world to try. I think it's just easy to get caught in your daily routine and not like, especially the older you get, but I think it's kind of cool like just to try new stuff, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I don't know, as far as RIT goes, I was on a 14 year plan there. Right. So I started, (laughs) I went for about two and a half years and like, I really took advantage of that school. Like I loved, 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 being there mm-hmm. even though the program was problematic like when i was going after your second year you'd split you'd go to like pretty much your last two years would be very studio advertising driven or it was more kind of mm-hmm. the photojournalism side which at the time was very geared towards like newspaper work and i was just like i want to do it all i just love photography i had no clue what i wanted to do i remember a professor sitting us down and asking everyone in the room what they wanted to do and of like the 25 of us in there, like 24 said they wanted to work for the National Geographic. And then he's like looking at me and he's like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, I have no idea. Like, I just want to make pictures. Like, I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So I don't know. Like I was, I was on campus all the time by the middle to end of my sophomore year there. Like I was printing for the professors mm. to make money and stuff like that. And I would, some of my roommates were older. So I would go to their critiques so by the time I started my junior year, like I'd already audited all the junior senior level classes. So it's like if I wasn't in the dark room or I wasn't interested in my class, I would leave and go to like see what the upperclassmen were doing. And yeah. so, but it, uh, it, was, it was it was a neat place for me at the time. Looking back, like at the time, I was frustrated by a lot, but I couldn't articulate why. And now looking back, I was like, well, that was a pretty magical time. Like I'm glad I. I went there. I don't think it's for everyone, but I like the kind of self-made track that I built. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's an amazing place, man, just because, like, as you know, once you get out of that school environment, you're not surrounded by this group of photographers, like, 
with people who have a similar interest and then this like the resources that school had be it the equipment or like the professors that had like knowledge it was just like I can't say enough about the place obviously not everything's perfect but I mean like what what do you think you took away most from going to RIT you think well I mean I did love that bubble of being there so like when I left I bounced around a little bit and ended up in San Francisco for about two years and after being there for about two years, I think I had two or 300 rolls of film that I hadn't processed, but I had shot that people had like gave me that was old expired film. Mm. And I was assisting some, some really cool guys out there who are still my, some of my best friends to this day. Mm. And, um, I got my first couple jobs there, but all I could think about was that film in a, in the fridge that I hadn't processed. So I ended up going back to RIT for a summer with the plan of trying to go ahead and finish my degree. Cause my dad was always really leaning on me. Like you gotta go have a degree. You gotta have a degree. Yep. So I went back for a summer and did nothing but print every second. The lab was open. Like I think I was living in a halfway house. I didn't realize it was a halfway house. I was just like, Oh, it's weekly rent. Cool. And then it's like, <laughs> why, why are people banging on my door asking me for money? Like why did someone poop on top of the toilet in there? Like what's going on? <laughs> so I would just print all day and then like, go back, sleep in my little weird, creepy room and then go back and like print more. And to me, looking back, like that was at the time it was painful, but now it's like, what a romantic, amazing time. Like you live in this really great bubble. And I think it's spoiled me in a lot of ways because it's like, I have all kinds of like gear obsessions. Like I want to own a little bit of everything. And I think it's the cage that kind of ruined me, right? Like I should be able to just go get whatever kind of new camera I want for this specific project. Yeah. Like one camera doesn't fit all. Mm -hmm. So I think that it planted some weird seeds. <laughs> mm. And then when that summer was up, I couldn't afford to keep going or do anything. And I ended up going to New York. But mm. I later, about 14 years later, I got my, my degree finally based on merit. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize they do that. So basically, what does that mean on merit? That's basically through your, your real work yeah. experience. Yeah. Wow. That, yeah, so that and sending them a check. But <laughs> okay. they have a, yeah, I mean, they're a business like anywhere else, but it's a much cheaper rate, right? Like, I think it was $150 a credit versus the, I don't know, $2,500 a credit or whatever it would have been. Like, Damn. I technically had a year and a half left. So I talked with whoever the new chair was at the time. And like, yeah. we looked at what my old program would have required. And then it was like, all right, well, this. Mm -hmm. And then um, I was able to, to get my degree later which i'm really glad i did no that's awesome man and i guess once you kind of finally got out of rit I, like i know you mentioned you're like in san fran doing some assisting and stuff like do you remember like what your like goal was like once you got it got out of there because like looking at your site obviously you've done some cool editorial stuff but then you kind of do your own fine art stuff like what do you remember about that like kind of first step into like the real world of like all right game's on now i gotta like make stuff happen you know <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wish I'd understood what a goal was at that point, but it was more, you know, I was really young. I think I was 21 or 22. And so I, I left the, you know, the magic bubble of a place like RIT where everyone feels cool and you're around people that understand to all of a sudden being in a world where it's like almost no one understands or it's going to put this level of care into it like you do. Mm -hmm. So my parents at the time were living in Tennessee. I went back to my parents and was there like a month and it was like you know you got to get a, a mick job or whatever if you're going to stay here and i was just like no i don't want to be here yeah so i loaded up my car i went to los angeles where i had some friends that were working with iron man magazine 
who said they could get me some assisting work there, the weightlifting magazine. And I got there and it was like, oh, no, you can't. <laughs> so I drove up to San Francisco because I purposely didn't know anybody there or anything about it. Everyone I knew in New York was like going out or at RIT was going to New York and using their connections and their friends to like work with Annie or all, any of these other people whose names we'd all heard of. And I was like, that doesn't feel right for me or not yet. Like I wouldn't use the word goal. Yeah. But I knew that's what I didn't want at that time. Mm -hmm. So I went to San Francisco because I knew nothing. And I looked up an old communication arts at the time, you know, pre-internet and all that. So I just called every photographer from the back of the communication arts annual and just started leaving my number. And I found a few really amazing guys to assist. And then uh, I had my little portfolio from RIT that was all photojournalism for the most part, like no lit portraits, no anything. Mm. I drove down to Los Angeles to see a friend for the weekend. And we dropped our books off together at the Los Angeles Times to like the slot in the mailroom door. Like you drop your book off on Wednesday, pick it up Friday. Damn. So I did that. We picked it up Friday and like we looked at our books and like I had one card in the back that I saw was taken. Cause of course you put in your leave behinds and you count them and you know which ones they are. So someone's taken it. And I had taken my whole portfolio approach in an even sillier direction. Like I used to have kind of a, a velvet, almost fluffy portfolio. And I would comb the, like the velvet <laughs> with my hand. So I could tell that if it was zipped open or even touched, you yeah. could see fingerprints or movement on the velvet. And I was like, yay, someone touched it. <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> so can... like we picked up our books at the, at the LA times. And I was like, Oh, well, no, someone's touched the velvet and one of my cards is missing. And we're like, well, whatever. We don't like them anyway. Let's go to fat burger. Yeah. And like we went to fat burger and complained about photography. But the next week I was working at a dark room back up in San Francisco. And, um, my pager went off, my 800 number pager I had went off. And it was, it was like, Hey, Jonathan, this is Lisa Thackerberry at the LA times magazine. We have a cover shoot tomorrow. Francis Ford Coppola. Are you available? Holy shit. Yeah. That's pretty much what I said. I think I was just kind of like, um, every instinct in my body was like screaming. No, like it's too big. I was terrified. I didn't own a camera. I didn't own light. Wow. I didn't have a fax machine to get anything done. And I literally was just like, well, you know what? I do have a shoot tomorrow, but I, I can totally reschedule it. Can I call you back in five minutes? And she's like, well, call me back in three or we got to give it to someone else. Holy like, shit. No problem. Yeah. So I called the guy I'd been working for at the time. And I was like, hey, Richard, 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 I got to borrow all your stuff. And he's like, calm down. What's going on? And I told him, he's like, well, yeah, here's my fax number and come over later and we'll throw all my gear in your car and mm. you can go do it. Damn. And so, I mean, there it was like him loaning me everything. And then I went up and and did a shoot of Coppola, which is my first time getting paid to make a portrait or using a light on a stand mm. for money. Damn. Like it was, it was absurd. What do you, what do you, cause like th that's a, that's an insane story. Like your first shoot, like out of school, you're shooting Francis Ford <laughs> Coppola, like hands down one of the most legendary directors of all time. Like, what do you, yeah. what do you remember about that shoot? Like, were you, Everything. Were, you <laughs> were, were you nervous? Did you rush through it? Or were you satisfied with the photos you made? Like, what do you kind of remember about that shoot? Um, it's hard to forget anything about that shoot. I mean, I, I, of course, am a huge fan of Apocalypse Now and the documentary Hearts of Darkness that his wife made about the, the behind the scenes of making it, I think, yeah. should be shown to every student of anything mm -hmm. right away. So I'd seen that and I remembered all these great lines from it and everything else. And so I got everything together. Like I got 
everything packed in my car. I think I hired my roommate at the time. knew nothing about photography, but like the night before I was like, well, here's how you put a light on a stand. Like, I just need someone cool around me. I don't care what you know. Like I can teach you that stuff, but can I have someone around that's going to have my back and that I feel comfortable with when I'm under stress? And it's like, yeah, but I, we went up there and the shoot was at his vineyard and I was supposed to arrive at noon. I got there at 8 (laughs) a.m. And I took the vineyard tour like I was any other person, right? Like, so we just showed up and rather than like wait to noon to scout, I got there at like eight or whatever it was, waited for them to open. I can't remember the exact time frame, but it was like, we took the tour. So we got the tour of the vineyard. Like we're just the tourists that used to come through at the time. Mm-hmm. And I looked around and we kind of sat towards the back of the tour. And every now and then I'd, I'd my half of lad and I kind of lined my roommate up with a shot. And like, we put pennies down, like, all right, you stand where this penny is. I'm where this penny is and everything else on this tour. And then we kind of just waited in the car and I tried to just breathe and not have a panic attack or heart attack. And then um, we met the PR woman at noon and she showed us around in her, in her black BMW on the grounds. And I remember we're getting out of her car back at my car. I'm starting to get the lights out and she's like, so you'll be ready at 1230. And I looked at my watch and it was 1218. And I was like, I was like, um, no, like, on the facts here, and I still have the facts somewhere because it's a fax from Zeotrope Pictures. Yeah. Like, that's going to be framed on my wall someday. Yeah. Anyway, I was like, no, it says here, like, 1.30. And she's like, yeah, it got moved up. Oh, damn. And so, like, I look back at my watch. It's 12.19. I have 11 minutes to set up a picture of Francis Ford Coppola for the cover of the time. But I'm like, huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, and we were by a row. Yeah, we were by a row uh, of... um grapes because it was at his vineyard so i was like oh well this will be cool and i set up one battery operated light and sort of got off one polaroid of my my roommate and then i saw a coppola walk up holy shit yeah how was he how was he to deal with was he like easy did you get how much time did you end up getting to shoot with them for that shoot um it looking back on it now it was better than i thought at the time like at the time i was like oh that was rough but looking back on it now it was it was fine like he he showed up, he's wearing like white silk pants and I'd been standing on a chair to get the angle up mm. and he shows up and while he's talking to his PR, he sat in the chair that I've been standing on with like my muddy feet. I'm looking at his white silk pants. I'm like, Oh no. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so I just ignored, I ignored that. And I was like, Oh, actually Mr. Coppola, like we need you standing up here. And like, he's kind of, he's looking off camera and I shot a few first frames. And I, at a one point I was just kind of like, this isn't working. Like if I don't, you know, man up here and just kind of tell him what I need. It's going to fail. So at one point I was just like, all right, Mr. Copa, I need you to look at the camera and like turn your body this way, bring your head back towards me. And then is there any way you could have you switch your glasses? He had on these big sunglasses and he's just very disinterested. Mm -hmm. And he literally looked at me and he's like, I knew you were going to ask me that. And I just kind of put my camera down for a second. I was like, there's nothing I can say to you today that you're not already like 20 steps ahead of me on. Yeah. But you know, I need, can we get your sunglasses off? He's like, all right. Yeah. And so I did this picture of him where he's got a tree coming out of his head that looks like a nuclear cloud that I really liked. And then I got about five or six rolls, like a backup 35 or five or six frames on a backup 35 millimeter camera I had. I shot one roll with a Hasselblad at the time. So it was 12 frames. Mm. And then I was like, there's, there's one in there, but I need to give them an option. Like my whole thing is like, never just give one, look shot like always have two looks at least yep 
So I was like, we got another backup shot we can do real quick. And I had enough time to set it up Mm -hmm. that we ran to it holding the C-stand. And my pennies were still there from the tour. So I did another picture of him where with a window over his head that was kind of cool. And I got 12 frames and my roommate didn't understand how the Hasselblads work had like put the dark slide somewhere. So I couldn't find the dark slide to get the roll off, roll off and put another roll on. He wasn't going to wait. Yep. And it was just like, all right, well, we got it. Thank you. Oh, dang. (laughs) Yeah. That's wild, man. Like, and you know, the thing I'm always kind of curious about, like, obviously like you're first starting out, you're, that's a huge shoot, obviously. Um, did it kind of take you a while to kind of build that confidence to be like assertive in these situations? Cause like, obviously, like you said, you don't get a lot of time sometimes. And, but at the end of the day, you gotta, you gotta make a compelling photo for your client. Have you always been able to be that kind of assertive and, um, talk to various people and whatnot, kind of dealing with these situations? Um, yes and no. I mean, there's times where I've definitely look at shoots and I'm like, I failed on that one in every way. Like I got an image. But all I can think about is what I was too nervous to ask the people to do or something like that. So, I mean, it, it got rare the more that I did it because I also realized, like, as much anxiety or self-consciousness as I have, like, it doesn't, I'm there for, like, Time Magazine. Yeah. And so to me, like, that alone is kind of your your key. Like, they're going to respect the client already. It's my job to not let that client down or look like such a buffoon that it's, humorous in a bad way but i think i'm also pretty good at just disarming people by being myself and i'm really bad with kind of the bs that a lot of people do so i tend to get right to the heart of things Mm. or at least that's my goal yeah definitely it's like a skill um and then i guess like you get your first assignment like how do you go obviously you can get one assignment but how do you kind of build on that like what were you doing to get your name out there how do you kind of get the next job because obviously you know like getting one job's good but you got to keep the train rolling keep getting uh, consistent work like what was kind of your next step once you kind of started working i guess um well it's never a clean line like i hear stories about other people and i'm like i don't know how they <laughs> did that like the the day after i shot Coppola I put my my film at at two different labs because I was that paranoid about the film Mm. so it was like I used one lab for some and one lab for another so that day while that film was at the lab I was assisting a photographer again the next day Mm. you know so it wasn't like I had a really clean break and I think over the next year I did three jobs for the LA Times Sunday magazine but in between it was still like I'm assisting. I'm barely making rent in some weird San Francisco hovel where I was staying in, or I lived in a weekly hotel in the Tenderloin there for a while. Yeah. So it wasn't a clean break. It wasn't like, oh, I've made it. Like I shot Coppola for the LA Times. It was like, yeah, I did that. And you know, a week later, I'm like, I can't afford a burrito. So I don't know how people necessarily have those clean breaks. I sometimes hear about. And mm. so I did that. I had all that film. And I went back to RIT for that summer where I printed. And then when that summer was up, I ended up going to New York. I think I had like 500 bucks left to my name. And there was a sublet in Brooklyn. Someone mentioned to me that was 275 a month. And I was like, well, I can afford the first month. So I went to New York and it was dumb luck through friends, the way it kind of slowly started. Mm. Right. So I had, um, I had, uh, my same portfolio, but I had the three tear sheets in the back from the LA times. And a friend had called and was like, Hey, I got a, I met a really cool guy at fortune magazine. Like you should meet him. And I was like, Oh yeah, sure. Okay. And so he got me a meeting and I went in 
and the editor liked my pictures and saw the tear sheets from the times and was like, yeah, if I don't give you a job in like a week, call me. It just means things got crazy. Damn. And then the, the next day, a uh, new editor at Fortune at the time called me and was like, hey, we got some writers we need photographed here at the magazine. Are you available? Mm. So that's kind of how that started. But that was also mixed emotions because I had gone to Eddie Adams' workshop when I was 20, I think my junior, what would have been my junior year at RIT. Yeah. So it was like, I went to that workshop and I didn't realize the scope of what it was. I just thought it was a really cool weekend where you go out and you shoot with people that are going to have your back and give you advice and work with really cool photo editors. Mm. But I didn't realize until literally the end of the workshop that they give out awards that are assignments to people that they thought did well at the workshop. Like I was pretty naive. And so I ended up getting a job for fortune magazine from the, through the Eddie Adams workshop but they never actually gave it to me. Oh, so it really? was like two or three. Yeah. It was like two or three years went by yeah. and I was just like, Oh, well, thanks. Fortune <laughs> and, and then like I got around, I got ended up getting in through later based on like my friend referring me to the editor and then me like just having enough cred that they gave me a try and I was able to build it up from there. Did you feel like moving to New York was like a necessity to be like a working photographer or was it something you always envisioned going to? Like what was your kind of overall experience? Cause like myself, I've never lived in New York or anything like that. But I'm always just kind of curious of like people's perspective on it because it is such of like a, I guess people talk about it. Like it's the end all be all place to be in terms of photography, I guess. Yeah, I mean, my goals were never that clear, which now I think about being a, kind of a good thing. Like, I kind of like the way my life's played out, even though it's a roller coaster. Mm -hmm. But I was never the guy that was like, oh, my God, I want to be a magazine photographer. Like, I just wanted to make things. Yeah. Right. And so when it became time to actually have to make a living, I was like, oh, I don't know how to do this. Mm. So. I went to New York after that summer at RIT because it, at the time it was the only place I could sort of afford to go. So I had a friend that was leaving, but didn't want to necessarily give up the apartment he was in. So he wanted me to sublet the room. And I was like, well, I don't have enough money to get back to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of just a feather in the wind. Well, all right. You know, at the time, New York was closest, closest and it was the path of least resistance. Yep. And I figured I could get some assisting work there. So even when I got to New York, I was assisting and shooting at the same time for that first couple of years. So it was like one day I'm shooting for a fortune and I remember I went out on a really big job assisting someone for a fortune. And I was like, Oh, I hope the editors like don't know that this is what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it is funny. Like I was talking to have my friend, I have had this conversation with my friend just the other day about like assisting and shooting. At least my thing is, I think like, people are too busy to give a shit most of the time if you're assisting and shooting you know i think a lot of times that this can it gets in your own head or something of like how people perceive you or something like that sometimes you know i think it's definitely true i also think it was it's very different today yeah than it was all those years ago when when i was starting out yeah. like there was kind of a weird stigma about it and you know there's people today who were amazing assistants and that that's what they do. Like that's actually their career path. And for a lot of them, I bet it's a lot more lucrative than shooting. Hell yeah. So it, it kind of depends on where you're at and like where your ego is, mm -hmm. you know, like I help friends sometimes still because I think their work's cool and it's a great way to learn stuff. Yeah. You yeah. know, so not only can you make a little bit of money, but like, Oh, if it's someone I respect, like 
I don't mind helping people if it's something cool or if I really like them yeah. because it's, it's a great thing. Like you go somewhere and like, okay, yeah, maybe we're shooting an accountant today, mm -hmm. but I got to hang out with my friends for a few hours and make some money. I got to help them make something cool. And usually for the most part, like the accountants we were shooting were awesome people. So like, this was great. Let's all go bowling now. Yeah. You know, like, and it's just, it's just good. At least for me, like it's good just to like stay busy, keep working. Like, I don't know about you, but like, if I have like downtime, if it's like not a job or something, like I get like stir crazy, man. So like, I, yeah, it's just like just get out there and work, and like you said, you can learn stuff on every shoot, you know. Yeah, or I mean, go shoot something for yourself, even if it's just taking out some camera you've never used and putting in some headphones and yeah. and walking around looking at the world. Like I taught for a while, and that was one of my favorite assignments. I would. I would do is like you give the students some weird lens they've never used before. And it's like, you know what, put in your headphones, go walk around and just mm. look at things. Yeah. How, how and you, I mean, I, I go ahead. No, nah, no, nah, I was just going to say, how, how do you enjoy teaching? Um, I loved it. I think there's all kinds of problematic issues with schools and especially the, the odd one that I was at, but I, I love the teaching. Like if you can help someone figure out a camera, and like see that kind of, you know, I've, I've heard someone else on your podcast talk about it. Like you see that light bulb go off over their head where all the dots connect because they finally understood whatever it was you were helping them with. Yeah. Like that's a great feeling. Mm -hmm. And then you get to see what they make. Like, you know, they go out for the first time and like now they understand how their flash works without just putting it on auto. Mm -hmm. And it's like you, you see them get creative and it's like, oh, this is this is awesome. Like, oh, try this and then go back out. Yeah. So I really like teaching. I did a lot of lighting stuff. So we would go out with like a small cube truck and I'd have five or six students that would each have their own pro photo kit. And I would just bounce from like set to set to set, like making sure they're safe and then helping them or giving them ideas or pointers or helping them with their exposures. Mm. It was super cool. It was like mini workshops. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. It's being around photography, like, you, it's not just the enjoyment of like, like you look at your website, you, you've shot celebrities and some high profile people, but it, it, was that like a, like a goal of yours to do that type of work or do you still get the same amount of fulfillment, like just teaching or shooting your own personal work or d does any of that stuff even really matter? Um, it's a good question. I think it's sometimes it's all the same yeah. and sometimes it, it does feel really different. So even though, I put the same pressure on myself whenever I go out, yeah. no matter what it is for good or bad. There are moments where I like, look, and I'm like, wow, this is something I really did. Like one, I got to photograph George Carlin once and he was like my hero growing up. Like I remember getting in trouble for watching his specials on HBO. I remember my parents watching them and me hiding at the top of the stairs, like with my head pressing the carpet so I could see the TV mm -hmm. and trying to not laugh. So I wouldn't get in trouble. And then it was like, I got to take his, picture for time magazine like yeah. oh my god <laughs> what, what was your and then was your interaction with that him this being like such an amazing comedian was what did he kind of bring to that shoot i guess oh well that was a fun shoot is the four seasons in manhattan Damn. and um so we're in a hotel room and of course i got in there ridiculously early yep. set up with an amazing friend who who helped so much on that shoot but um we got it all set and we we're just kind of waiting for him and i got a call that you know which room are you in? Okay. Like George will be right up. And I remember asking the man who called me, I was like, all right, well, like how many people are with them? Like, what should I expect? And the guy just kind of laughed. He's like, um, it'll just be George. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I was like, Oh, okay, cool. And I remember 
I could hear the elevator starting to move down the hall and I shut the, the door to our suite because I wanted to be able to see George Carlin through my hotel room peephole window. <laughs> and it had a doorbell and I thought it was hilarious. You know, the our hotel room has a doorbell and like, I want to see George Carlin through the peephole of my hotel room door. Damn. And sure enough, I heard the elevator and I shut the door and like, all of a sudden I hear the little doorbell and I look through the peephole and like, there's George Carlin through the peephole of my hotel room door. Damn. And I kind of opened the door and I was like, Oh, Hey, Mr. Carlin. And he's, he's right into being Carlin. He's doing a skit about the Braille that's on hotel room doors and numbers and things. <laughs> he's just nonstop. And I was just, yeah, kind of, but yeah. he walks in and he's got a, like kind of a, a leather coat on. He's wearing a W hotels baseball cap. Mm. And he comes in and he's just kind of like, yeah, guys, like, I don't want to do any of that goofy comedian stuff. Like, I don't want to make a bunch of faces. Yeah. And he's like weird hand signals, but he starts doing it. And of course you're watching him do it and you're like, those are great. Yeah. But okay. We're like, we won't do that. Mm-hmm. And I start, he, I'm like, my editors are going to kill me if you don't take that hat off. Like I always throw the editor that's not there, like onto the bus. Yeah. As like an excuse, like, oh, I can't photograph you in a W Hotel's baseball cap. He's like, oh, I really don't want to take off my cap. Like, I didn't do my hair. Yeah. And like, I started laughing because I thought it was a joke, but it yeah. turned out he was serious. Yeah. So he took the hat off and he like, he wanders into this like huge bathroom suite that had like no door. And I was chatting with him. So unbeknownst to me, I had walked into the bathroom with George Carlin, mm-hmm. who's now working his hair. Yeah. And he's like, is this hair gel? Is this hair mousse? And he's going through the whole thing. Damn. And we come out. And I start shooting close-ups because I knew for the magazine it was only going to run a quarter page. Yeah. And I'd been doing a few of these for a while. So at the time, they just it was like black background, quarter page. Get a really cool thing of his face to fill up that quarter page space. And so I'm um, photographing. We're doing close-ups of his face. I got him to say the seven words you can't say on TV. And I'm like, well, which one's your favorite? And he just says, like, fuck. And I'm like, no, say it louder. And he's like, fuck. And so we just start screaming fuck back and forth at each other Jeez. and I'm shooting really fast and I'm loving it. And I blew the circuits to the whole half of the four seasons hotel uh, <laughs> from shooting too fast. But before I even realized what has happened, my assistant softly put his hand on my shoulder and was like, I got it. And I had a backup shot, which is one that's on my website of him on the bed, all set and ready to go. But my assistant had heard that with the second it happened, the, the mini bar or whatever the mini fridge still had power okay. so he rehooked up my my packs to to that outlet yeah. i did two or three frames of carlin he's like i gotta go and i'm like okay like this is the, the shot's so perfect i literally have a polar to my assistant sitting the exact same way wow and i was like my my whole frame my whole roll of like 12 looks the same because i was like this is this is it okay look off look camera look off yeah. i don't know what else to do finish the roll finish the roll yeah all right sir thank you wow and then i think he yeah, he passed like not a year later, I don't think. Damn. Yeah, there is such an amazing uh, photo that one of him sitting on the bed. And, you know, like, what's your approach generally to like these portrait shoots? Like, do you obviously go in with like a plan in mind? Do you always stick to it? Um, do you kind of leave room to kind of like uh, just kind of go, go where the shoot kind of takes you? How do you kind of approach these portrait shoots generally? Um, it's always kind of dictated by the space we're allowed to be in and then try to make something as cool as I can out of that space. Mm. You know, I, I hear stories from other photographers and it's, it's amazing to hear because my life's been so different. Like I'm usually told like, all right, this is where you're going to be. This is the time you have, you know, I don't know what they're wearing. I don't get any say in what they wear. Yeah. 
or any of those kind of things. So to me, it's just, it's always kind of flying by the seat of my pants and then trying to make something that I think is iconic or beautiful for me. Mm. No, it's interesting. And, you know, one photo I had to ask you about, which uh, was pretty interesting. I remember looking at it on your blog, uh, Bernie Madoff, I believe you photographed. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. then, and then once all the craziness happened with him, I think your photo got used a bunch of times. Uh, what was your experience photographing that guy was it this your average shoot or what do you kind of remember about photographing him um it was kind of your average businessman shoot like it was nothing that out of the ordinary it was in um 99 so i just started i think it was one of my first kind of shoots for fortune that was a, a formal portrait of a you know a money guy so i did one shoot of him on like his trading floor that was okay but wasn't that great and then we did the hall and he was just kind of indifferent you know he's just like all right all right i couldn't get much out of him from what i remember all the shots are pretty one note but every now and then i might get him to change his hands or maybe look this way or that like there it wasn't that memorable mm -hmm. but i remember really liking the hallway shot and then the magazine ran like one from the, the trading floor like quarter page or whatever it was and i don't even think i read the article mm -hmm. it was one of those where it was like well I did my best. I liked the other picture better and they ran that one, but they still called me again. So that's good. Mm -hmm. And I filed the film away and that was that. And then 10 years later, I got a call from the wall street journal that was like, Hey, we see that you photographed Bernard Madoff, like, you know, in 09 or whatever, or 99. And like, you still have it. And I'm like, yeah, it's film. Like I'd have to get it scanned real quick and get it over. And they're like, all right, we've got like 20 minutes. And I was like, we well, got to pay my minimum. And they're like, yeah, no problem. Cause my minimum wasn't really that high. Yeah. But it was one of those things where I was like, wow, it's a 10 year old picture and they, they want it. So Damn, like, you could have, you could have tripled the price on that, Jonathan. <laughs> well, I didn't know what the, the scope was yet. Right. Yeah. Like, and I, right after I sent it over, I searched around and uh, the kind of homemade stock site that me and a bunch of other business guys were on at the time. Like I searched that and I saw that no one else had them. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of went back to my day. It was just another quick kind of, resale of a business guy and then later that night i was like this is weird so i looked it up and saw what was happening i was like oh my god <laughs> and to bring the whole story kind of full circle i went out to brooklyn and i had a guy there who's really amazing with stuff like throw it on his drum scanner and make the file look really really good mm -hmm. for me a guy named rocky and it was awesome and then I, the next day i kind of waited for the phone to ring and sure enough it did <laughs> and it turned out, other than I think me and Joseph Karsh, no one else has done a formal lit portrait Damn. of Bernard Madoff. That's a, that's, so that ended up, yeah, that's the perfect. Being really cool. That's that's the per <laughs> that's the perfect lesson of always keeping your archive organized and just keeping everything because you never know, like down <laughs> the line, where one of these things can go. You know. Well, I've had a few of these kind of things happen. Not all like as lucrative or as weird as Bernie Madoff, but I've had some amazing things happen. Like in, uh, in January of 2000, U S news and world report sent me up to Boston to photograph three guys that started a company called Akamai. Yeah. And so I photographed like the young kind of algorithm wizard and the MIT professor and like their investor. And it wasn't a very good shot or anything that I'm very proud of. It's three, three guys on a couch overly lit because I was trying too hard and everything else. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of forgot about it. And then I'm watching a story after nine 11 and I hear one of the men's names come up and it turned out he was the, the first man killed on nine 11 on the first plane that hit the first tower. 
Oh yeah, I was looking at that photo. It, what was the guy's name? His name is uh, Daniel Michael Lewin. Yeah, Daniel Lewin. Uh, yeah, Daniel Lewin. Yeah, that that's pretty yeah wild. So that that happened, and then um, I eventually, you know, many years I sent some files over with just a watermark on it to let them know that I had it, and I didn't hear anything. And then when I was living in Los Angeles a handful of years ago, I get a call from some of the company. It's like, Hey, is this your picture? Like, do you still have the film? And I was like, I have all 58 frames. Damn. And they were like, Oh wow. And I'm like, I was like, well, do you want to work something out? I'll give you all, you know, I'll let you buy all the film outright. Yeah. And we worked something really reasonable and simple out. And I was like, okay, here's, I made a few scans of my favorite images and gave them all that film. Damn. Yeah, that that must have been then, yeah, that must have been intense. Like, because looking at the photos that you have on your site, you were living in New York during nine eleven. Uh, you fo- you were photo you photographed like some of the, the obviously that guy, and then you did like some photojournalist uh, photojournalism type of stuff. This around the city, like, what do you remember about that? Like, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who actually lived in New York during that going on. Um. Yeah, I mean it was a it was a weird time. I was talking to someone the day about how there were so many beautiful experiences in that. And it, it upset her. She's like, how can you say that day was beautiful? And it's like, that day wasn't beautiful because of what happened. It was some of the things I witnessed between people afterwards happening that were some of the more beautiful memories I have. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'd been out really late that night as a third wheel on a friend's date out bowling. So we were out till like three or four in the morning or something. And I was getting calls and screening them through my sleep really early that morning. And it's like, just, Hey, I hope you're all right. And I got a couple of them. I was like, I don't know what's going on. And then I got a message from my brother that kind of said what was happening out loud. I looked online first at the time and saw like a picture and was like, Oh my God. And my pages started going off from a lot of the magazines I worked for that were not in New York, Mm. that I think were going to ask me to go down there or do something. And I, I was already kind of in logistic mode. I was like, it's closed off. I'm not going to be able to get close. I don't know that this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. A really amazing photographer I had assisted in San Francisco called me and he'd been, he'd done assignments in Afghanistan and stuff in the eighties. And he would, I remember distinctly what he told me. He's like, you're going to regret it forever if you don't go photograph. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know that this is, me anymore. Like I started off doing photojournalism and didn't like a lot of the things that I saw. And it was, it was really weird to make money doing a lot of that. And I was just awkward and uncomfortable with it. And then people started hiring me for portraits. So I just kept doing that. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's what I want to do. And then later that day, I sent a note over to the editor that I knew really well at the time. And was like, you know, I'm available if you need me to do something. Like I wasn't going to go do anything on my own. But if someone asked me to, it, in my mind, it changed everything because I was doing a, a bigger service. It's not just me going out there. What do you, so what at do the you, time, that was... What do you think you were like right. hesi- hesitant about? Was it more like you just felt weird about kind of photographing like tragedy kind of? Or what do you kind of remember about feeling about being kind of hesitant about it, you think? Yeah, I mean, that was part of it. Like, I'm really conflicted Like I about a lot of these things. Like, I absolutely love a lot of the schools of guys like Jills Perez and all these other people mm-hmm. who make the most insanely beautiful compositions and really horrible situations. And it took me a long time to realize that just because I really admire and enjoy and respect looking at a lot of photography, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that's the kind of photography that I'm 
built to do or want to do. Yeah. Even though like I own all these guys' books, like I have Farewell to Bosnia and all these other books that I think change the way I see the world forever, not only because of the content, but because of the skill of the photographer to be there and tell the story the ways that they do. Mm-hmm. It was really amazing. Yeah. And I grew up in a, a lot of journalism world. Like I had a, I knew a guy who came back from Africa and shot really awful stuff in Rwanda and he's making prints and like, he's making some of the dead bodies, like make noises while he, like, while he's looking at his prints, I'm just like, Whoa, like I can't wrap my brain around all this. Like there's all kinds of reasons for that. And I'm not judging anyone or even saying that's bad. It's just like, this is rough, but I don't know how to get over there and do it. Most people I know that do things like that are there on their own money mm-hmm. and then trying to do it later. And I'm like, I don't understand. I love looking at the the pictures that people do, but it's just, yeah. it wasn't me. Yeah. Even though I love making images like that. Mm-hmm. So it's, I'm conflicted is the best way to put it about a lot of things. So in my mind at the time, if a magazine I respect asked me to go do something, I'll, I'll do it. And then at the time, I lived really close to the one firehouse that I photographed that lost almost all their shift, I think. Yeah. So that was a block away. And the editors, I got a lot of work at the time because all the magazines in Time Inc. knew I lived like one block from the Time Inc. building at the time. Mm-hmm. So I would get a lot of my assignments because I'm 10 minutes away. John, be here in 30 minutes. We've got to do this. Okay. Yeah. So... Anyway, I got a call to do the the firehouse and I was more comfortable to go like once I knew it would be used in an important place, telling an important story. Mm-hmm. But if it was just me, mm-hmm. I probably would have let it go some and I'm still conflicted on how I feel about that. Like I wish I'd gone out and shot more because there were there were beautiful times, but at the same time, like I wanted to know it was gonna get used for something bigger than myself. Yeah. So that's yeah yeah no it's tough man like yeah i kind of have like those battles in my mind too as like a photographer like anytime you're doing like documentary stuff it's like i don't know how you feel about it but even like sometimes i feel like like am i using these people is it just like am i i don't know what you know what i mean like it's just weird because like obviously you're an artist you're trying to create something and then you're you're kind of like building these relationships with people, but there's like this weird middle line because you're like trying to like get something from these people in some regard. And I'm not even talking about the 9/11 stuff. I'm just talking about like portraiture, documentary stuff in general. I don't know if that makes sense, but it makes perfect sense. And I mean, it's uh, it just has to do with the nature of photography itself, right? Like I think your Coburg even write, writes about this sometimes too. Like, where do you fall? on which side of what line, you know, like even photographing strangers at all in public anymore is very problematic. Mm -hmm. Right. So how does one navigate this? And all I can do is, is try my best with my own moral and comfort compass. (laughs) Yeah, man. It's, it's constantly shifting and moving and just got to navigate it, I guess. Um, yeah. And to be aware of it, like really when I was at RIT, I would, road trip down when some of the upperclassmen would all pile in a car and like go down to like a march on Washington. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I remember it was my sophomore year maybe, but there's a big march on Washington and I it was um, for gay rights at the time. And I, I hopped in the car and I went down there with everyone else. And I, there's a color guard walking down the um, Vietnam Memorial wall. And as they did that, I saw, you know, it was like, four people in a color guard marching down the wall to show their respect. But there were probably like 300 people with cameras all around them. And I remember watching like 
a guy grab his stroller and like try and hop a little mini fence because all these photographers walking backwards are about ready to trample the stroller. Yeah. Another guy's cameras were swinging off his shoulder and like hitting the memorial. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, wow, I want nothing to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I walked off and made photographs of people in the fields and stuff. And I really liked it. So, yeah. you know, I'm conflicted because yeah. there's, there's probably beautiful moments to be had, but I don't know that I, it's, important that i be the one to do it yeah and did it kind of take you a while to kind of find your perspective as a photographer like i kind of ask this to everybody like style and like aesthetic and things like that is like that's something you think about like i guess like it's probably a hard question like how would you describe your work obviously you do a lot of different things but like is it something that kind of took you a while to kind of find your voice you think yeah and i wrestle with it still i mean especially when it comes to assignment work like i remember there was a a handful of really cool reps in New York that like everyone wanted to work with because they're repping cool people doing like different kinds of work, especially for magazines. And like, I wanted to be in with those guys. So it was like, yeah. And I got a letter back from one of the reps once that was just like, well, your personal work's like super, super cool. Like, why don't you shoot like that for your assignments? And it's like, well, you can't, (laughs) you know, me photographing, a girlfriend crying like in bed or whatever is really different than me photographing someone for fortune magazine. I can't tell the guy to like, you know, Hey Bernie, Ma- her, hey, hey, hey Bernie Madoff, <laughs> take your shirt off and like, like or do some <laughs> weird shit, man. Like, I don't know. Yeah. My God, that would be amazing. I remember <laughs> when I had to shoot Rush Limbaugh, oh, man. he had made a, I found his, a transcript of his show yeah. and he was talking about the Abu Ghraib prison. I'm saying it wrong, but like the, the big prison photographs, that were so problematic yep. over in Iraq. And he was, of course, being himself about it all. He's like, oh, I'm getting photographed for Time Magazine tomorrow. I'm going to wear a black pillowcase on my head. Oh, man. And so I showed up the next day, and I don't know, I, I, we charmed each other is, is how I'll phrase it. But I was like, hey, man, so I brought this black pillowcase. I'm gonna, can we throw it in your head, and you're going to make me like the most famous photographer in the history of the world? <laughs> and he just burst out laughing, but it's not like he would have done it, yeah. you know? And it's like, well, and the flip side of it, I think one of the reasons I worked for a long time for a lot of different clients is I understood the perspective and aesthetic of that magazine. Mm-hmm. So I would make a picture that I think is, the best of me, but is also within their style and expectations. Yeah. Like, I don't want to go there and they've seen all my big lit portraits and be like, well, I decided to photograph them with an eight by 10 view camera by the window today. Yeah. Like that's not really, it'd be super cool. I'd love to, and I'm not putting down people that do that because I would love to do that sometimes. Yeah. But that wasn't what the situation called for the aesthetic of the magazine wanted. So I can be a really good craftsman Mm -hmm. given the nature of what the assignment is. And I'm okay with that. Like I actually went out of my, not went out of my way, but I was very conscious that my magazine work looked very different than the work that I do for me. And it's very rare that they necessarily overlap. Mm. And I wrestle with this and I've had this conversation with friends who are super into art photography or maybe don't shoot for a living, but it's like, I would hate to walk into MoMA and have it look like fortune magazine assignment. Yeah. Like I don't want to see that the top of the pyramid of photography be like a magazine images on the wall like i think it's there's different ways to approach it and there's guys that are so good that magazines then hire them and have some of their aesthetic but that's not the bubble unfortunately that i was in it was like i'm a craftsman doing my best job making really cool pictures for my clients yeah and when that's done i'm going to go back to making things that are in my world that look like how i want to 
make them look because that's what fulfilled my heart and my brain. Yeah, for sure. And like as someone who you spent, how long did you end up living in New York City? Uh, 13 years. So you lived in New York City. You kind of, I think you say you spent some time in LA. Now you're in Asheville. Like, what's your kind of like view of like photography as a business these days? Like, did it change a lot since you started uh, getting into it in terms of like assignments and stuff? I guess like, what's your perspective these days? You think? Um, I try to remember to try and keep it optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I mean, my view these days is I've. I do a lot of things now that aren't even photography related for money. Yep. And it's, it's been helpful for my, my work itself. And again, like I never set out to be like the end all be all magazine photographer. There's people that I really respect. You know, I was, I started shooting around the same time Martin Scholler did. And it's like, you watch someone like Martin Scholler, like he's 100% chasing exactly who Martin Scholler's always wanted to be. Yep. And he's a great example to share with students. All his lighting keeps developing as he gets bigger and better. Like his, he keeps pushing. Like you watch a behind the scenes mm-hmm. of one of his shoots, and it's it's evolving. Like you can watch it evolve, and whether you like the style or his goals or not, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's really amazing to see someone who's like, "This is what I want to do," and chase exactly that. Whereas I was just someone that wanted to make things all the time for me, and if I got a call, I could put all that on hold and go do my best efforts for my client. Mm-hmm. And these days, I don't know what it's like. And I, I got really disheartened in New York by a lot of things. Like the way I kind of phrase it is me and a few of the magazines that I knew, like broke up with each other. Yeah. You know, they were amazing to work for, but like they didn't pay me great. They didn't treat me great. Yeah. When I look at a lot of photographers out there now who are my peers at the time who are still killing it. Like I have so much respect for the work that they're doing, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I'm like, well, if they're working for them, I assume they had to sign the same contract I got handed. And that contract was abusive and disgusting and gross. And this is someone that probably signed it or has some kind of unicorn situation where they didn't have to. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I didn't get offered that unicorn deal. (laughs) I got offered things that were like, you sign this contract or you don't work for us. And I didn't, you know, and I, I'm conflicted because I missed the work so much. I missed getting that call and it was really super cool to go make an amazing picture of someone doing something awesome, Mm. but it's, it's a weird coin. Yeah, man. The economics are really tough. And like, even I'm going in my 10th, 11th year here and I've even seen it get worse, even this, like, in terms of like editorial rates go down everyone wants perpetual use and then when you get into the commercial side of things i found that like a lot of like for one agencies don't seem like they shoot as much as they used to a lot of times they'll use art directors that are like half decent photographers that will kind of do both and it's just uh and it's not to be negative it's just like a reality of what it is right now you know yeah it's all really hard to navigate and i have so much respect for the people that are mm-hmm. that are doing it and doing it well yeah. but it it is tricky like you could have it you could show up and then have i did a shoot in la where someone arrived at my shoot that i, I didn't know who they were i didn't like i didn't know their name i didn't know they even worked for the magazine and they're there kind of taking over and art directing everything yep and i'm like i didn't even know you were coming to this like inclusive shoot. (laughs) Yeah, man. (laughs) And now like, and now you've art directed it so much that like 
it's not natural to what I would have done. Mm-hmm. And then when I handed in the person that did hire me for the shoots, like, what's this? And I'm like, well, you know, so I navigate those things the best I can. And I don't know, a lawyer I have put it in a really smart perspective for me once. He was like, look, you can get taken advantage of, or you can look at it as a business decision, right? Like if you know what's going on and you agree to it like beforehand, like, oh, I know I'm going to do this bad contract or what else, but it does get me a portfolio image of, you know, subject X. Well, that's great because you made the decision that you decided to accept all those parameters because that picture was important. If it is about the money, then it's easier to make a different choice, but like, let it be a business decision versus an emotional one, even though to me, because it's photography, they're all tied together. Yeah. You know, people are like, Oh, this isn't personal when it's money. And it's like, there's nothing more personal than going after my money. Yeah. You know, and I have a real hair trigger, unfortunately for places that I feel are disrespectful to creatives. And I think that's where a lot of these big companies are making their names now. Like they, they pretend to care about a big group of photographers, but we're just a bunch of yeah. needy weirdos that want attention and will probably say yes if you dangle the right carrot in front of us. And, and I don't mean any of this to sound like a jaded guy because yeah. there's beauty in all of it, but like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, I mean, hate to say it, but they got the leverage because it's just like supply and demand. There's so many photographers out there. Yeah. They they can treat you like shit because they know there's another younger guy or whoever right, right behind you is just ready to do the job regardless. So it's not like, I'm not naive to that yeah. fact. I think... The thing I've been looking at like lately is this more like, are you a photographer because you get hired? Or are you a, are you a photographer because you take pictures? You know what I mean? Like it, it, looking at your work, it, most of the, a lot of the coolest work on your site is no one's hiring you to do that. It's just you're a photographer and you take pictures at the end of the day, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to spend this all too negative, but it's like I know people who are so wrapped up, like they don't touch their camera unless it's an assignment. Yeah, And I see them from the outside and I don't know them well, but like from what I can tell, like they're like clinically depressed. And it's like, if this is why you're <laughs> like, you needed, like, you, you shouldn't define yourself by the assignments you get. No. Right. Like I, I tried to flip it in a lot of different ways. It's even the, all kinds of weird stories about why my site's not my name and stuff like that. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's really important to me that like, I, I don't want to be defined by the jobs that I've shot. Yep. It doesn't mean I'm not proud of them. It doesn't mean they're not some of the happiest moments of my life in a way. But like, that's not why I got into photography. I don't pick up a camera only because I got an assignment. Yeah. There's people that do it that way and they're really, really good. Yep. And some of them make a lot, a lot of money. And like, I envy them. Like I look at them and I'm like, that's pretty magical. Like I know someone that got paid like 15 grand to shoot a cat on a white seamless. And I'm like, yeah, I want that job too. Yeah, man. Like that, not only was that a fun job, your clients were cool. It paid you fair for all the ways they're going to use it. Yeah. But you know, we had like a stuffed stunt cat and stuff. It was a great day. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, I would, I wish that was my shoot, but that's not the world that I'm in. Yeah. But I'll go 15 grand into debt to go photograph this tree. I heard about. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, that's a good attitude, man. Yeah. It's a lot of ups and downs, but as long as you're having fun with it, I think that's the thing I've been trying to keep, not go to the dark place, man. I go there sometimes. I'm trying to like, I'm trying to stay positive, man. I, I, I kind of went, yeah, du- went to the dark place today and I, 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 I coming back, man. I'm coming back. Uh, but well, I, call me and I'll try and do the same <laughs> if I end up there. All right. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, I get, just go make something. I mean, that's the beauty of this, right? Like, yeah. And again, we can get really deep in the couch on why people make things, but mm-hmm. work something like, and I don't even know if 
like fun's not even the right word. Like I remember when I was really obsessed with clay shootings and stuff, I called my girlfriend and I'm at nationals and I'm like, my anxiety and my, all these other things basically had me almost crying. And she's like, why are you doing this? Like, is this even fun for you anymore? And I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, like, and I think it's, it's a great parallel for photography in a way. Like I don't necessarily do it for like quote unquote fun. It's just, mm-hmm. I'm really driven and I need, I want to make things. Yep. I need to make things. And I like my favorite thing in the world is like, I, I've probably made 30 or 40, of my own books and really, really tiny runs. And I don't even try and sell them. I make a handful. I try and remember to keep one for myself, but for the most part, I send them to friends or the people that I really admire because I'm like, you got to see this thing I made. So it's like, make the most beautiful thing you can. And then, and then give it away to people that, that understand. And that's an amazing feeling. Yeah. It's like personal satisfaction and almost just like the, uh, is it almost kind of like a challenge for you to like, you'll make these books and like kind of complete it at the end of the day, kind of. Um, what do you mean by complete necessarily? (laughs) I guess it's like, it's just kind of like giving yourself like a challenge to like work on a project and create these things and publish your own book and just kind of have the personal satisfaction at the end of the day to be like, yeah, I made this, you know, I, I started it and I finished yeah. I, and I finished it. It's more like a completion of a thought, right? Like this thought's going to haunt me until it's done. Like I I'm doing a, it's kind of on pause because I'm now no, no longer in California, but I was working on a project about earthquake epicenters. Mm. And like, once I had the idea to do this, I'm going to photograph every single earthquake epicenter that happened in this 30 day period in Los Angeles. Yeah. And once I went down that rabbit hole, like I went and did like weird work and stuff at night so I could have time to go out during the day and do nothing but like work on this project every day until I couldn't actually complete it anymore for one reason or another that we're out of my control. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's like, until that idea is kind of flushed out or there, I don't know how to not obsess with it. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, like I want to get this completed. And when I look at what I've made, this feeling of um, satisfaction and joy and then the desire to share it is just overwhelming. Like, mm. look at what I've made. Yeah. Like, look. <laughs> it's a good feeling, man. It's so you, beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> you, you accomplish something, even if it's not like you didn't pay for it. It's just like a challenge or something. It's good. Um, yeah. And I mean, the money is just an annoyance. Right, like the money is just something that's 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 in the way that keeps me from paying my rent because I spent a week photographing invisible GPS sites. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, oh well, <laughs> this is all I wanted to do, but oh yeah, rent. Oh yeah, like bills. Yeah, like it's just an annoying thing I have to do, but it's not what drives me. Yeah, like you know, it'd be cool if people want to send me a bunch of money to work on these, and I'm trying to apply for grants and stuff a lot, which is a whole the world of photography i wish i'd paid better attention to all this time mm-hmm. but it's it's a it's a wild thing and then to see people that i've reconnected with at rit who i haven't spoken to in forever that are the three or four people i maybe see that are, i feel are kind of in the same boat with where my brain is it's like wow like look at that yeah they're still out making things like just for them too yeah it's, it's motivating like yeah it's beautiful and it's, I think it's the underlying thing of why so many of us love this so much. Like, I get why photography is so popular. I get why everyone's freaking out over, like, Instagram and being able to mix stuff on your phone. Like, it, it's magic. Mm-hmm. No, it's, awesome. <laughs> it's a cliche, but it's super, super true. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I guess to kind of wrap up, like, you've been doing this for a while. What kind of what kind of keeps you going? I guess we kind of already talked about it. What kind of keeps you inspired to keep shooting? And 
I guess, kind of like anything you're hoping to work on uh, moving forward, I guess? Um, I really want to try and find a way to finish my earthquake project, which, of course, would mean getting back to L.A. But there were 191 earthquakes sites I need to photograph. I got over 100 of them. And all of them were, I view, from public land. So I need to find a way to, there's a handful that are in the mountains I can't access because you're not, like, I don't, my rules are really clear. Like, I don't cross fences. I don't trespass. Mm -hmm. So given all the weird rules I've created for myself, like, how do I complete that? So that's one that's like an annoying thorn in my paw that I wish I could get done. I'm trying to, uh, right now, my big focus is on making a really magical room full full of prints with my old friend from Brooklyn. Rocky, who scanned the Madoff image, moved to Asheville and now has a, a gallery and kind of archive gallery building business here and works with heroes of mine that I, whose work I've looked at since I was in high school. And so it's like, wow, like this guy is here in Asheville and he's going to help me. We're going to build a show together and that's going to be an amazing room of prints. You know, like let's get back to printing. Let's put them on the wall yep. and let's build an amazing show that we can try and get to travel around to other places. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting, man. Well, Jonathan, man, uh, <laughs> I can't thank you enough to for taking the time to do this. Like I said, I've been following your work for years, man, since I was at RIT. So it's always just it's interesting to talk to the the real person from years of following your awesome website. I like to tell stories, um, but for people listening, like where's the best place to check out your work if they want to check it out? You think? Yeah, well, I like to tell stories dot com. You're gonna land on kind of my journal mm-hmm. journal page. I hate the word blog, but it's a it's a blog, but I've stripped away a lot of the nonsense. Yep. So it can be a little labyrinth and I hear annoying to navigate, but I, that's where the most interesting things I'm up to are. And then if you need an organized section portfolio, like we're all used to, there's a link in the upper left. It's just work. I like to tell stories.com. And that's got my assignment work and books and the, a lot of the videos I've been playing with and things like that. And, yep. and thanks for looking, man. It means a, it means a lot. Like it's really easy to live in your bubble and yep. not think anyone's watching. And then to hear from someone that's had such good respect for you all along is, yeah, I don't know mostly what keeps me going. Hell yeah, man! <laughs> I, really I, nice to hear. I appreciate it. Anyways, Jonathan, I can't thank you enough, man. And uh, yeah, definitely keep in touch, dude. Yeah, thank you, sir. It means a lot that you uh, you reached out. I'm really flattered. Thank you. So there you have it. That was the Jonathan Saunders interview. I want to thank Jonathan so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Like I said, I've been following Jonathan's work for years and I've been a big fan of all the work he does, be it his editorial or all the personal work he does up on his site. I like to tell stories.com. Just really impressive work and this the amount of work that he puts out. I uh, can't say can't thank him enough. So definitely go check out Jonathan's websites. Um, he has two different sites. Um, for If you want to check out more of his editorial portraiture work and assignment stuff, you can go to work.iliketotellstories.com again that is work.iliketotellstories.com and for more of his personal work and personal projects the things that he's updating on the regular you can go to www.iliketotellstories.com again that is www.iliketotellstories.com so definitely go check that out as well as his instagram at iliketotellstories And as always, I'll be having weekly podcasts every Monday on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, as well as my website, alexgagnephoto.com, and on my Instagram, at alexgagnephoto. Thanks so much for listening, and take care.